6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 4. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. That's them, those, right? They are of the world. See, the world is his. Let's not forget that. The media and virtually all formal institutions in some way or another either infiltrated or controlled by him. That's a very difficult truth to, 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 to uh, come to terms with. But it's, I think, valid. Is it any wonder that they tolerate any religion except Christianity? Have you ever noticed that? In the public schools, you can teach any religion you like. Talk about Buddhism, you talk about this. Oh, but you don't have Christmas trees around Christmas. I mean, you don't have any prayers. Oh, for heaven's sakes, not to God. Allah, okay, yeah, sure. Not to the God, the living God. Wow. Does that tell you something? That's how Jacques Vallée, the French researcher, and J. Allen Hynek, the American researcher, the two most reputable researchers in the whole area of UFOs, for example, came to the conclusion that they are demonic. How do they... They're not... They were a researcher. How did they come to that conclusion? Because they, they pretend to be something they're not. That was the trigger to them. I thought they were pretty perceptive guys. That's interesting. Cain was religious. Cain knew God. He believed in God. He was giving an offering to God. He was religious, but he wasn't following God's instruction. God had instructed them that a lamb was to be offered. God was trying to teach them but by the shedding of innocent blood they would be covered. That's what, and, and Abel was following directions. It wasn't the fact that he happened to be a shepherd, and the other was like, that, that's, people mis, misunderstand the, the point. Cain was doing it by his, he was writing his own rules. Verse 6, We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The essential equipment that's dealing with here is the armor of God, and you find it listed in Ephesians 6. Verses 10 to 18. Not the 10 and 17 is sometimes listed. No, it's 10 to 18. Many of the lists I've seen miss the most important one. The heavy artillery is verse 18. Prayer. Action at a distance. Anyway, make a study. If you haven't done it recently, I encourage you to take a personal study of Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, where Paul admonishes you twice to put on the whole armor, not just your favorite pieces, the whole armor of God. Why? Because you're on enemy turf. Well, God is love. For the third time, we're going to be considering the subject of love, this time from a deeper point of view. So be prepared for that. Love for the brethren has been shown as proof of fellowship with God. And we did that in chapter 2, right? Verses 7 to 11. Then it was presented as proof of sonship in 1 John 3. In the earlier passage, love for the brethren was a matter of light or darkness. In the second, it is a matter of life or death. Remember, this is, a, this is not a church epistle, it's a family epistle. It's more intimate. It's closer in. 
Now we get down to the very foundation of the matter, why love is such a critical part of life that is real. From verses 7 to 16 here. Love is the valid test of our fellowship and sonship because God is love. We are united to God through faith in Christ. We share His nature. Thus, love is the test of the reality of our spiritual life. That's why in my wife's trilogy, the primary document, that's known as what, 12th or 13th printing, that the way of agape, the way of love, that's foundational. You won't get anywhere until you really discover that God loves you and that God himself is love. The three foundational facts that we're going to deal with here. What God is, God is love. What God did, he sent his son. And what God is doing, he's abiding with us. Wow. That's, that's a concept that will challenge any of us. What God is. Verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Three times in this section we're encouraged to love one another. Three times. Here and, and then 11 and 12. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Because we have been born into his family, we have received his nature. Both First and Second Peter hammer that too. You knoweth not God. Wow. The word know is gnosko. Much deeper meaning than simply intellectual acquaintance or understanding. This verb is used to describe the intimate union of husband and wife in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Gnosko. Wow. Intimate. Experienced. To know God means to be in a deep relationship with Him. This knowing is not simply a matter of understanding facts. It is a matter of perceiving the truth. Wow. See, many of us have an 18-inch problem. It's okay up here in the head. We've got to get down here into the heart. Now, you may not have 18 inches. It may be less, but I'm being generous. here. Okay, never mind. I won't go there. All right. The fact that Christians love one another is evidence of their fellowship with God, their sonship from God, and that they know God. This is a daily experience of growth. We are to be growing in this direction. To argue otherwise is to prove that one does not really know God. Ouch. Really. This is the third of three expressions in John's writings that help us understand the nature of God. God is spirit. That'll be in verse 24, as to his essence, beyond the restrictions of the physical world, not limited by time and space. Okay, we can get that. God is light. Okay, we had that back in chapter 1. A symbol of holiness, darkness is a symbol of sin, and so on. God is love here, even as judgments are measured out in love and mercy. And, and Jeremiah makes the same remark in Lamentations 3. So we talk about three conditional facts. God is. Okay, the next one is what God did. That's the next emphasis here. Not only in words, in deeds. In fact, he has geared all creation to meet man's needs. We call that the anthropic principle. And in the ultimate deed that he may, does, this is manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Wow. This was manifested, made public. Old English word for me, but made public. Out in the open. See, under the old covenant, God was hidden behind the shadows of rituals and ceremony. 
Why was that? Well, this was manifest the love of God toward us because the God had sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him, His only begotten Son. When did He do that? At the cross, of course. That's the only place in the epistle where Jesus called His only begotten Son. What does that really mean? Unique. The only one of its kind is what it means. doesn't mean He's begotten in, in the biological sense. Two purposes are given for Christ's death on the cross. That we might live through Him, that's in verse 9. That He might be a propitiation for our sins, that's coming in the next verse. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is that big fancy word. What on earth is that all about? He's used that term before in chapter 2, you may recall. There are two different forms of the Greek word that are translated propitiation. Here, halasmos is a predicative, accusative, in apposition with huyen, that is the son, that they're in apposition here. Propitiation is something God does to make it possible for men to be forgiven. That your price is paid is what it really, in effect, communicates. Okay? Propitiation. This is the great mystery throughout all theological musings. It's the big mystery, the fundamental mystery. Even Socrates recognized the implied paradox here. Back 500 B.C., he said, It may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. What's he dealing with here? Because he realized that a righteous God cannot condone unrighteous behavior. It's got to be paid for. How can he forgive it and still maintain his righteousness? If he's lax... To, it, 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 it enjoins his, his, uh, one of his basic attributes. And even Socrates recognized that. That's one of the reasons I'm so fond of Hal Lindsey's acronym for grace. And I, I don't know, I think it was original with him, but in any case, that's certainly where I stole it. And I think it's great. Hal says grace is an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. The point is, you and I obviously merit by the cross. We've certainly heard that enough. What we may not fully appreciate, God also, it was a win for God. Because it gave Him the possibility of having fellowship with us as sinners. Because through Christ, at His expense, it was paid for. So God can now enjoy fellowship with us because the price has been paid. So God's riches at Christ's expense. That's that carries a lot of meaning. I'll leave that with you to, to, to mull over. I think it's profound in ways that, uh, that may surprise you. God loves you, but He cannot save you by love. He has to do something about the fact of sin. And it took the cross. This paradox is what the book of Romans is all about in the first seven chapters. You want to treat us on the nature and uh, solution antidote to sin the first seven chapters of Romans is, is the cornerstone of the entire Bible. The book of Romans is probably one of the most profound intellectual pieces of uh, uh, writings that's ever been written on the planet Earth. And I challenge you to jump into that one. God's predicament, which is solved by God's greatest gift, His Son. This is the role that's symbolized by the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody talks about the Ark of the Covenant. They usually mean the two things together. The lid is not separate. I mean, it's, it's not the same. It's always described separately in the Scripture. 
In fact, the Holy of Holies is defined as the location, not of the Ark of Covenant, of the mercy seat. And that's really the great issue that's going on vis-a-vis the Ethiopians, all the rest of it. We suspect that what they've been guarding for 2,500 years isn't the Ark of the Covenant as such. It's deteriorating. It's wood covered with gold and it's falling apart, apparently. But it's the mercy seat, which is hammered gold, we suspect may be the very throne from which Christ rules in the millennium. Could be interesting. And we have a briefing pack on there called Seat of Mercy, if you want to get into the background there, and so forth. So the propitiation is symbolized by the mercy seat in the tabernacle, and we suspect it may be the literal throne in the millennium. Possibility, anyway. Jesus was made flesh, he to, he to, John tells us in his gospel in the first chapter. But Paul also reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 that he was also made sin for us. It's significant that we are to remember his death, not his birth. Nowhere in the scripture does it say we should celebrate Christmas. His birth is even exactly when it occurs. There's all kinds of speculation. I won't get into that here. But it's not his birth. His death is what we talk about in the Lord's Supper. He says, this do in remembrance of me. This is my blood. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood given for you and so forth. So that's the, that's the, that is a sacrament instituted by God himself to his followers. I know there's some people that say that what's in the gospel doesn't apply to Christians. They say that was given to Israel. Well, I don't think, I don't happen to hold to that view because they, they argue that since the, since the church was born in Acts chapter 2 at Feast of Pentecost, everything prior to that was to Israel, not to Christians. And I understand the point of view, but I don't buy it because I think he's giving instructions to his, all the way through his disciples that reflect on us. We are to give, do this do in remembrance of me, he says. Those are his instructions. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In this way is seen true love. And that's what Romans 5.5 5 is also all about. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This is the second time we're admonished to love one another. And uh, so we know what God did. Let's get to the third of these three foundational facts, what God is doing right now as he abides in us. No man hath seen God at any time, we're told, right? If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. No man has seen. First Timothy 1 also deals with that. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul tells us in Colossians 1. So if you've seen Christ, then you've seen God, is his point. And we are participants in the great drama of God's love, because he dwelleth in us. Where did God dwell? Well, in Eden he walked with man, didn't he? There was no temple in Eden. There was no sin yet to be dealt with, no temple. God walked with Adam. We can't even grasp what that means. We also suspect from some psalm references that Adam was clothed with light. He walked with God. Wow. But sin, when it did enter, required man's covering. That's why God taught them they would be covered by the shedding of innocent blood. And Enoch, Noah, and Abraham also walked with God in some sense, apparently, the Scripture tells us. At the Exodus, God dwelt with man by means of the tabernacle. That's why that uh, Charlton Heston, when he came down from the mountain, had not only two tables of phones, he had a roll of uh, engineering blueprints. He had the specifications for this peculiar portable uh, place called the tabernacle. That's where God dwelt with man at that time. He dwelt in the camp, but not in the bodies of the individual Israelites. That never said. Unfortunately, the nation sinned and God's glory departed for Samuel 4. But God used Samuel and David to restore the nation. 
Solomon built a magnificent temple, and once again, God came to dwell, and he dwelt in there, 1 Kings 8. But once again, the glory of God departed in, in uh, Ezekiel 8 and 10, 9 and 10 and 11. Then came Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, 6. Remember that verse? One greater than the temple was here. And now he dwells where? In us. Really? Why is it that we don't perceive that? Why is it that our behavior seems to hide that so well? It's as if God is hiding in us. We can't tell, can we? That's what led my wife to write the trilogy of books. The way of Agape, the first one, and Be Transformed. So that light of, of a God that is in us can be seen, not throttled by our own self-will. Then came Jesus Christ. Now in us, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that's said seven times in the New Testament? And I happen to think that's not a figure of speech. I think the architecture of the temple is the key to the architecture of our own selves. And that's a whole other study, the architecture of man. But the best exposition of that that I know of is my wife's The Way of Agape. Because it, it takes all of that and puts it down where the rubber meets the road in practical day-to-day um, counsel. Love one another is both a commandment, 1 John 4, 7, and a privilege, 1 John 4, 11. It's both. It's also the thrilling consequence and evidence of our abiding in Christ as we took in, 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 that we'll have in verse 12. And with this background, we're going to examine the rest of this section from verse 12 to 16. Hereby we know that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. Dwell in Him. The word mino, dwell, is used six times in the next five verses. To remain in spiritual oneness with Him. Wow. Is that possible? This is only possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever is in bondage to sin. You need not be. If you're in Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit to call upon, and if you're willing to yield to Him, He can keep you from any addiction, any other problems. That's quite a bold statement. Test it. Try it out. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And there's another verse that seems to not reconcile with the Calvinist limited atonement. No, he, he came for the world. The fact that the world rejected him is, in a sense, beside the point. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. The whosoever is an important word. Contrast this indwelling with the isolation and separation when in the Old Testament he dwelt in the temple. You've got it a lot better now than they had it then. Oh, if we could have been alive then and seen the Shekinah, if we could have, oh man, if we could have been, could have been. No, 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 no. Contrast that with what we have now. Warren Wiersbe uh, notes that three different witnesses are suggested in this passage. The witness of the believer that Jesus is Christ is born of God, verse 15. The witness in the believer by the Spirit, in verse 13. The witness through the believer that God is love and that he sent his son to die for the world. So that's another way of slicing this that I, I, I draw, of course, in all the commentaries I can get my hands on, but I like Wearsby's crispness right here, especially. We have known and believed that the love, we have known and believed 
the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. See, God is love. It's not simply a conceptual statement. It is the basis of the believer's relationship with God and with his fellow man. This is foundational. This is as foundational as it gets. God is love, and he he dwells in you. Does it show? Love one another is both a commandment and a privilege. It's also a thrilling consequence and evidence of abiding in Christ. The better we know God's love, the easier it will be to live as a Christian. The better we know God's love, the easier it will be to live as a Christian. See, Bible alone is, is insufficient. In fact, a dangerous substitute if we are not careful. Unless we love the lost, our verbal witness to them will be useless and often counterproductive. Have you ever noticed that? Of course. We are to return love for the world's hatred and slander. We've been focusing on Christians loving one another, but now we turn to a deeper, more important topic. The believer's love for the Father. The Father loves His children in the same way He loves Christ. That's staggering to really embrace, by the way, to realize that. That the Father loved us so much that He allowed His Son to be put through that episode? Wow. Christian life is to be the daily experience of growing in the love of God. There are four evidence suggested by which a believer can know that his love for the Father is being perfected. One is confidence, that's verses 17, 18, and 19. The next one is honesty, verses 20 and 21. Let's take a look at them. Here it is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. The word boldness there can mean confidence or freedom of speech. It does not mean brazenness or brashness. It's not the Hebrew term chutzpah. No, 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 no. A believer has a reverential fear for God, not tormenting fear. He is a son who respects his father, not a prisoner who cringes before a judge. Okay? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The word fear is the Greek is phobos, phobia, if you will. John is writing chrysophobia, which is fear of judgment. Remember Hebrews 9.27, is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Now that's a refutation of reincarnation, among other things, by the way. People often ask me about that. No, it's, that, that's a, it's not a, there are exceptions to that verse, by the way. Enoch was an exception. And, and uh, Lazarus was an exception. Widow of Nainsuch, Jairus' daughter. Number, several exceptions. That's the general rule. Once to, but once to die, but after this the judgment. Several people died twice. Lazarus died twice. Anyway, moving on. A believer in Christ does not have to fear the past, present, or future. Because see, if we love him because he first loved us, we don't have to, we, there's no past, present, or future. For the Christian, judgment is not future, it is past. We have been judged already on the cross. That's great news. If man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he, hath loveth, he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? So we're now starting another evidence, and that's called honesty. Ananias and Sapphira were simply playing a role. We found out what happened there in Acts 5. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So there are four evidences I suggested by which a believer can know that his love for the Father is being perfected. Confidence and honesty. We looked at both of those. There are two more that we haven't dealt with. 
And those are going to be in the final chapter, which is our next session. Our next session puts a wrap-up on the whole thing. So for your final session, next time, review all your notes on 1 John, because it's a short little chapter, but we'll use it as the occasion just to review and put a a ribbon on the whole package. And then also, obviously, want you to study the final chapter, chapter 5. And so with that, let you and I stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's do by our hearts. Father, we thank you that you are such a God. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you are love. And how we would want to appropriate that to ourselves. Help us to comprehend the realities that are here declared, Father. Help us to experience these things firsthand. Help us to be effective that when people see us, they see you, Father. Help us to remove the baggage of our grave clothes. Help us to remove those things which encumber us, our self-will, our egos, and our ingratitudes, which takes so many dimensions. Forgive us, Father, for ingratitude, and forgive us our presumptions, Father, for they are many. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you that in your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. Help us, Father, to fully apprehend your love for us, that we might reflect you in all our doings, in all our thoughts, in all our words as we commit ourselves without any reservations into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, our Lord, and our Redeemer. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.